developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 342, Little Green Man. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a deep dive and even risk altering the timeline in order to find the profit, I mean morals, <laughs> meanings, and messages in every episode of Star Trek. This week, Little Green Men, the one where three alien males of somewhat diminutive stature and really more orange than green skin show up out of time, out of place, and throw an army base all out of whack. But before we get into that, I would like to let you know how you can contact us, so please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, please call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, for a small price of a few bars of gold-pressed latinum, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Speaking of gold-pressed latinum, John. Mm-hmm. Yes. I hear that you have some tasty trivia for us for a few mm. bars of gold-pressed latinum. But hold on a second. Yeah. I, I can't seem to find... I can't seem to find them because I'm wearing a uniform where I don't have pockets to carry money. Uh, uh, again, again with the no pockets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sorry, Always I'll, an excuse. I'll have to yeah. owe you that. So um, yeah. on to this week's trivia. All right. I can be bought. I'm just saying. So trivia for this week's episode, Little Green Men. Well, we have a story by Tony Marbury and Jack Trevino. And what do you know? Again, our unknown writing team from the DS9 episode Indiscretion, who had actually pitched a version of this story way back in the next-gen days when Rene Echeverria was working there. So it got pitched again for DS9, and honestly, it wasn't a favorite of Michael Piller or a few others on the staff, but Rene was the one who really championed it there, and it finally found some legs to be developed into an episode. Now, the teleplay is by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. No surprises there, both veteran DS9 writers. And of course, um, maybe the script has a little reliance on Ira's quirky sense of humor. 
Now, it was directed by James L. Conway, and yes, he directed three episodes of TNG, and yes, he's got several DS9 and uh, more to come as well. But it is worth noting here that he also directed the 1980 movie Hangar 18, a place that gets name-checked in this very episode. Most of the trivia and inspiration for items in the episode are, are actually built into the episode. <laughs> there are references in style to sci-fi movies and science fiction tropes, and we'll probably hit on a few of those in our discussion and even in our wrap-up. There is a fun little detail that I wanted to point out early on here. There's a pinup calendar that we see at the Army base. I uh, have a pinup pin kind of... Uh, very closely styled after a similar shot of Rita Hayworth. And uh, the title on that calendar is My Love Has Wings. And it's a line from a poem that Gene Roddenberry wrote back when he was a pilot. He actually, the original poem is written about a pilot really thinking about talking to his airplane. So, you know, literally his love has wings. All right, then in Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot TOS, Gary Mitchell quotes that line as being from a poem written in 1996 on the Canopus planet, proving once again that good ideas never die. They just get retitled. So I love pinup art. Don't you love pinup art? I absolutely do. I have many, many books of pinup art and, uh, you know, nose cone art from uh, vintage airplanes. And absolutely. I mean, you probably know this about me, Norman, that I was probably born in the wrong time. Uh, so I definitely have a gravitational pull toward aesthetics of the mid-century. And I do mean the last century, not this century. Mm, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Now let's talk about our guest stars a little bit here. We have scientist Jeff Carlson, played by Connor O'Farrell. And he's been working regularly in TV since the 80s. And in addition to the guest roles he racked up, uh, he also has a number of recurring spots. The longest of those is on CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. But uh, he's also in Medium, The Pacific, Nip Tuck, Desperate Housewives, and many more. We will see him twice more in different roles on Enterprise. Officer Wainwright is played by James G. McDonald, another frequently working actor on everything from soaps to guest roles on dramas to feature films. Uh, it's his only turn in Star Trek this week, but you may have caught him in American Horror Story, Jag, Buffy, and many others. Faith Garland is played by Megan Gallagher. Now, this is one of those great stories when an actor, in this case Megan, was well-known before Star Trek. Uh, she had really uh, popular recurring roles on China Beach, The Larry Sanders Show, Hill Street Blues, just to name a few. And when casting for Little Green Men, Faith was a Megan Gallagher type. <laughs> that's, uh, that's exactly what the producers wanted. But then her agent found out and sent the real Megan Gallagher the script. And uh, so Star Trek got her, or she got Star Trek, uh, however you want to look at it. And uh, now we talked a little bit about her before when we discussed the DS9 episode, Invasive Procedures. She did appear in that one as well. And we will catch up with her one more time on Voyager. You know, being a big fan of 80s TV and, and seeing her in this episode, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. There was, yes. There was there was a crushed flame rekindled when uh, I saw her. <laughs> great. And and you know what? I mean, not not to spoil too much of our discussion, but it's not just that. I mean, she just has a truly uh, believable presence and and exactly the right kind of 
pleasant and and excited attitude that that, that character needed. It was just absolutely perfect for the role. There's a certain uh, there's a certain optimist that yes. we will reference later on that she's very much embodying yes. the spirit of. I think you and I took the same note on that. Yes. Finally, we welcome Charles Napier back to Star Trek as General Denning. Hard to mistake this lantern-jawed actor who made a career out of uh, tough guy and authoritative roles. I still can't repeat my favorite line of his from the Blues Brothers on a family acceptable podcast. Uh, He does, though, make a good hippie as well, just like he did in the TOS episode, The Way to Eden. And that's actually the kind of idea that the writers had for bringing Charles back to DS9. Rather than that, though, we got him as the tough general. Nice to see him again here. And we did lose Charles in 2011. And you had to love his turn as a similar type of character in the Austin Powers movies. Ugh. Yes. Yeah. I, the, the words still ring in my ears. You, you, you see him at, at the base and you see the map behind him. He's like, get me on a plane to London, England. England. He's like England. one of the few actors that can talk <laughs> through his gritted teeth. Right. Uh. It's a tale as old as time. Dropping off the kids at school while operating a highly illegal smuggling operation. Let's see how it works out for Quark. Prologue. Nog is preparing to go off to Starfleet Academy with the time-honored Ferengi tradition of selling off his childhood things. A tooth sharpener, a spring ball racket he acquired from Major Kira... You know, the usual stuff. Everybody is happy for him, though. They want Nog to take his best shot and don't blow it. Quark, who still disapproves, crashes the proceedings, though, to tell his brother Rom to come with him. Their ship has come in. Literally. Quark had loaned their cousins some money with the promise to one day pay it back with a ship of his own, and he made good on the promise. Rom checks it out, and the ship checks out. All is good. She's ready for a maiden voyage. Quark has in mind someplace safe yet far away. How about Earth? It's a win-win. They'll drop off Nog at the Academy, and unbeknownst to everyone else, Quark has some contraband to unload. Act 1. Quark leaves Morn in charge of the bar. Nog and Jake share their goodbyes. O'Brien and Bashir present Nog with a little gift, a pad with a complete guide to Earth's history and customs that will probably most definitely come in handy, and he should probably start reading it right now. The newly christened Quark's treasure is ready. The three Ferengi climb aboard their starship and head for the skies. On the ride, Nog brushes up on human economic history. Quark just wants to go faster and demands another tenth of a warp factor out of his brother when it is revealed that Rom knows Quark is smuggling chemocyte. Of course, he and Nog will keep quiet for a piece of the action. Quark relents. They step on the gas a little more and they make it to our solar system in no time. There's a problem, though. The warp drive has been sabotaged, or sabotaged, preventing it from shutting down. They'll keep accelerating until they fly apart, unless they act fast. Rom is struck with inspiration, vending plasma from the warp core into the cargo hold full of chemocyte, which should reverse the reaction. Much to Quark's surprise, his brother is a technical genius who can solve the world's problems without even trying. It works. Kind of. The ship comes out of warp, 
For the next thing we know, Quark, Rom, and Nog are on examination tables in a very 20th century room being observed by a very 20th century looking Army Air Force officer who makes a call to his general that one of the Martians is awake. The calendar on the wall shows it's, it's July 1947. Act 2. The military, headed by General Denning, are doing what they do, denying the reports of a crashed Martian spacecraft in Roswell. The scientist, Jeff Carlson, is doing what he does, looking at the aliens with curiosity. The sympathetic nurse, Faith Garland, wants to make sure that they're all right. And the Ferengi are doing what they're doing, being very frustrated at being locked in a room. No idea that they're being watched from behind a two-way mirror. Quark's screams aren't understood, though. His voice comes out in Ferengi. So the soldiers go in, guns pulled, and with orders that the scientists try to figure out who they are and what they want. It's not going well. The humans open with the standard, we come in peace, and the Fringe have no idea what's being said. Apparently, their embedded universal translators aren't working. It's kind of a mess. Three Ferengi slapping their own heads to sort of reboot their translators, the soldiers mimicking them as if it's some kind of communication. Quark gets it. These humans are everything he expected, and just as Nog has read, greedy, reactionary, and dumb. This might be an opportunity. Act 3. In their own language, the Ferengi are putting together pieces of what's going on. The translators probably aren't working due to radiation from nuclear fission, unthinkable in a planetary atmosphere, yet these primitive humans do that with bombs. Quark is appalled at all the smoking going on, and yes, Nog points out that these primitives willingly paid for the opportunity to poison themselves. Quark smells another business opportunity, but Nog warns him not to do anything to disrupt the timeline. The humans, now just Jeff and Faith, who are an item, by the way, in their language speculate that these advanced beings could teach humanity so much and serve as inspiration that maybe, one day, we too will travel to the stars. Meanwhile, the military are doing what they can to study the Ferengi spacecraft, noting that President Eisenhower wants answers, and soon. The breakthrough comes, though, when Rom notices Faith's hairpin and motions that he'd like to see it. He then uses it to hit the reset button on the translators, and it works. When Faith brings in General Denning, it's Quark now who makes the introduction. He's Quark, the chief financial officer of the Ferengi Alliance, and he's got a business proposition. Act 4. It's all about technology. Quark says he can make the general a deal. Advanced technologies, including weapons, beyond their wildest dreams. It only costs them a couple million bars of gold. Denning is not impressed, but Quark just says he can take his business elsewhere, like maybe to the Russians? Denning can't do too much about it on his own, but he can try to get clearance from the president. Left on their own, the three Ferengi concern themselves with the idea that they really just need to get to their ship and get out of there, all of which Quark says he can do. He just needs to work this angle with the general. In their room, a dog from the base that's hanging out with them gives a bark, then jumps up and puts his paws on Quark's shoulders. It's not a dog at all. It's Odo, who secreted himself aboard their ship to figure out where all this chemocyte was going, and he's there to arrest Quark for smuggling. Here they are now, all four of them stuck on Earth, 
in the past, but the ship still works. Rom's got a plan. If they can use an additional energy source, he might be able to reverse the reaction that brought them there. Quark has no plans now to leave, though. These humans are so greedy and gullible, he has his sights on running the whole planet. Then they'll use their future technology to run the whole quadrant, then the galaxy. Who cares about the timeline? Odo objects. He'll have the ship ready in six hours. They will all be ready to leave. General Denning tells his officer, Wainwright, that the president is not ready to make a deal. Therefore, it's up to them to figure out what these aliens are really up to. Now it gets serious. Wainwright and his soldiers come into the room, throw hoods over the Ferengi, and take them into the interrogation room to find out just what they're doing on Earth. Faith emerges from the shadows with a syringe. Act 5. That syringe, full of sodium pentothal and four more just like it, do nothing but make Quark scream in agony, and Faith is fed up with these torture tactics when they should be treating the Ferengi as guests. With the truth serum not working, Wainwright starts to threaten dissecting the Ferengi. Each one in turn trumps up a new story. Rom just whines that he wants his Moogie, while Nog makes up a whole narrative about a Ferengi invasion fleet. Of course, Wainwright totally buys into this. Quarcha says, hey, he's there to sell things. The more Wainwright buys Nog's story, the more Nog embellishes. He'll even show the officer on a map if he can be untied. It's just the diversion he needs. Nog elbows Wainwright, grabs his gun for an instant before a guard in the room points his weapon at Nog. Seeing an opportunity, Jeff and Faith help, though, overpowering the guard and Wainwright, and they help the Ferengi escape, only to be caught outside the door by General Denning and more soldiers. From behind, though, Odo has morphed from the tire sitting on a jeep to overpower the men and creating an escape for all of them to get to the hangar where the Ferengi ship is being stored. With the knowledge that an atom bomb test is occurring soon, it's just the energy burst they need to reverse the accident that brought them there. Faith and Jeff are a little starry-eyed, helping the aliens get back to where they belong. It's inspirational for them that maybe one day humanity will travel to the stars as well, to which Quark says they should really just stay put. Zipping off in Quark's treasure and leaving General Denning to merely acknowledge that the army had a run-in with another weather balloon, the Ferengi head straight for an atomic bomb mushroom cloud. Rom exposes the chemocyte on board to the beta radiation, a time warp opens, and, what do you know, Earth. Circa 2372. Their ship is hailed to see if they need assistance, and all is well for getting Nog to the Academy. Back on DS9, it turns out Quark had to sell his new ship for salvage, and that paid for the return trip. Odo wastes no time, though, telling Quark that he's still under arrest for smuggling chemocyte, which leaves Rom to find a lawyer, possibly a referral from their cousin Gala. The End. And that, sir, that much fun that you have infused in your recap has earned you at least one bar of gold. Yay, I, a whole bar. A whole bar. A whole How bar. many strips make up a bar? Do we know? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. All right. Because I, I'm Starfleet, and I don't understand currency because I don't need you it. You don't have, right. Of course. How would you? You got no place to carry it. You got, you got replicators everywhere. You probably have one in your mm-hmm. room right now, for all I know. 
I'm just saying. <laughs> hey, um, one thing that I, I do understand and I, I can uh, sympathize with, and that is selling your childhood possessions when you go off to college. Um, I think that's a pretty human thing, too, for some humans, you know, um, although I'm, I'm still trying to do it uh, as the boxes of action figures will attest, um, you know wasn't always good at getting rid of childhood things. So that whole thing with Nog at the beginning and selling off of his stuff, and mm-hmm. if he's going to be at Starfleet Academy, what does he need all of the profits for unless he's going to do things that need oh, money? right. Oh. Oh, man. Talk about another culture clash coming up. I mean... It's just an interesting thing. Yeah. I, I see him having a lot of late-night poker games at the Academy. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by the way, he doesn't have a lot of fun stuff in his childhood collection. Well, he has, he has Kira's, <laughs> Kira's spring, springboard paddle. Springboard, his spring ball paddle, right. <laughs> Which he stole. I mean, come on. But then there's Worf's. I love that scene. I do too. With, with the tooth right. sharpener. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so, I mean, first of all, I'm really glad that they called it out right away that Worf has this reaction like, oh, Faringa going to Starfleet. And you have to have O'Brien right there just saying, uh, people would have said the same thing about a Klingon there. So I'm glad that we have that. But yeah, it's it's such a, a genuine moment when he picks that up and he, he's really happy about it. Uh, Norman, mm-hmm. would you ever think to buy a secondhand piece of dental equipment from a garage sale? Only if it has been properly sanitized. And I'm sure that if you stick it in a warp reactor, it could probably take care of some of those okay. uh, unidentifiable germs okay. that are in the uh, <laughs> alpha quadrant or the gamma quadrant. Right, exactly. What I loved about this whole, I guess, uh, it's, is it a garage sale? Yeah. I mean, what would you call yeah, this? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, is it a, you know yeah, yeah. It's a, you don't have yards, so you have quarks. Yeah. yeah. The quarks garage sale. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about this is that there has been a lot of talk uh, from, I guess, from the original series until now about money. What is money? What does it mean? Mm. What does it matter? Yep. Why do we have it? Who uses it? Who doesn't use it? And it, where does Dax has this giant handful of coin? Right, gold press Latin. Yeah, and it's like it's it's jingly. It's not like she's you know it has you know she doesn't have like a credit chit. Yeah, or some type of check or or a credit card or anything like that. She has jingly coin yeah where does that come from yeah and why <laughs> i know i know because it, again it seems like you could replicate just about anything and i know you can't replicate gold press latinum but yeah she's got right. jingly coins and it's not like uh dr crusher in a counter at farpoint uh the pilot episode of tng just saying like i'll take that fabric just charge it to my room what room your room is on a starship and you're about to leave <laughs> come mm-hmm. on yeah Oh, it's the biggest scam. We, we you know, Starfleet just says, yeah, we, you know, we don't have money. We just, uh, yeah, just bill it to us. <laughs> that's, that's a whole <laughs> other show in and of itself. Oh, just I, the, the aspect of currency and the acquisition of wealth and why and when are you going to use it. I can't even. That, that's a whole panel of experts. I, I'm just going to sit back and watch. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Hey, so there's a nice little detail about Gabriel Bell looking like Cisco. Uh, incidentally, if you, you know, I did a freeze frame. I just wanted to read what was written there and have a good look at that picture. And it's always interesting when you freeze frame a close up like that, and you can see that it's you know printed on paper and stuck to the prop. Uh, but Gabriel Bell was born April twenty fourth, nineteen eighty seven. Tragically died September twenty third, twenty twenty four. 
but here, here's a question for you. Uh, why would a file photo look like Cisco? Because Cisco only assumed the identity of Bell like the day he died. So That's a good question. Yeah, and then he's gone right after that. So I can actually find the answer to that question okay. in one of the pockets that I don't use. Right. Yes. See? That's, that's <laughs> but here's the thing, John. Yeah. With that particular scene, there's that – I don't know how to say this correctly because mm-hmm. I don't think – I don't want to say this insensitively, but Quark says that all humans look alike. Yes. That's a little kind of too close to the vest when it comes to kind of – a racist statement that we understand about African-American people. Yeah. Oh, well, I thought that too. And, and honestly, it's not just, uh, I mean, I, that has been used by people uh, pejoratively toward pick a race, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, pick one. And it's, um, I know that they were going for a joke here. And I know that they were sort of flipping the tables on, you know, human versus alien or one race versus another and and sort of everything being a cultural context. But I thought that too, because we mm-hmm. had that picture of Captain Sisko there, African-American male, and I wondered if you would write that joke today. That's a good question. Yeah. Listeners, what do you think? Yeah, let us know. Hey, where was Odo during all of their problems on board uh, Quark's treasure? Uh, or or right after that? Did he just keep thinking like, uh, well, this part, you know, where they're going through a time warp or, or they're about to die in, in you know, the, the failure of the warp system. Um, mm-hmm. And then they have to do this stunt with you know, creates a time warp. Uh, was Odo just somewhere else? It's like, uh, well, this part probably won't kill me. So I'll just keep sitting over here looking like a floor lamp. <laughs> you know, <laughs> could you imagine a scene where... They're like, oh, the chemocyte is going to explode, and Quark and and, and Odo's back there. Like, I'm back here yeah. with the chemocyte. What does <laughs> right. this mean? Oh, I I chose poorly. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but he just waited until the right moment to show up as a dog. And I, you know, pretty dog, by the way. I love dogs, and I love German shepherds. Very pretty dog. Oh, there's a great little moment where they're trying to figure out if they're alive or dead. And uh, Cork, Ram, and Nog are saying, well, wait, is this the divine treasury? It can't be because there's no blessed exchequer and we're not bidding on new lives. And then Nog says, well, wait, is it the vault of eternal destitution? Uh, and, and I love that, that they just they have this little moment of depth about the Ferengi afterlife beliefs that, <laughs> of course, are all based on economic ideas. And uh, Quark says, well, of course they can't be in the vault of eternal destitution, their version of hell, because don't be ridiculous, the bar was showing a profit. Like, <laughs> that, that's the thing. They don't go to church, they don't pray or whatever. It's just like, if you make a profit, you'll make it to the divine treasury. <laughs> So, so their version of the pearly gates, there's going to be a version of St. Peter there looking at his tables yes. saying, hmm, yes. yeah, you were in the black. Go ahead. Go in. No, nope, you were in the red. You're going down. Yes. <laughs> or you can bribe me for your way back in. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So good. Yeah. I guess in Ferengi culture, you can take it with you. Oh, and I, I love the bit. I mean, of course, it's so funny to see everybody slapping their heads uh, during the translator scene. Um, but I love the way that in the show they express the misunderstanding of language because it's just the sounds chopped mm-hmm. up and maybe a little bit played backwards or something. 
And it, you know, to us hearing English, American English spoken but messed up, you kind of get the idea of what it would sound like to somebody who's not an English speaker. It's just sounds that have an accent, that have a tone to them, but you can't follow it. And it reminded, well, it reminded me of several things. Uh, first of all, the, I forget her name. There's a very talented woman online who can imitate accents but saying nothing, like no, no actual words. And she does dozens and dozens of them. So good at it, in fact, she got hired for Star Trek Beyond, and I think she even worked on Star Wars as well, to create languages for those movies because mm. it's just about the sound that sounds convincing, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then there was another thing. There, there was an Italian song that was sort of, uh, a, you know, a, a, a gimmicky song that came out, I want to say in the late 60s, early 70s, called, and I'm going to mess this up completely because it's a nonsense word. It's a made-up word. Prison called an incinanchusol, and it is a nonsense song that is an Italian performer saying syllables that sound like what English sounds to a non-English speaker. Well, it's kind of like when Iron Butterfly did Inagata De Vita. Uh, right. Right? Yes. Right? The lead singer was so hammered when he was yeah. performing that it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. Right. But he was slurring all of his words and all of a sudden became that. Yeah. So if you're looking for a karaoke song, that's clearly the one to do. And if you get really, really, really hammered, you'll probably pronounce it correctly. <laughs> Correct. Just in the reverse. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I really did like that scene, though, John, when they were smacking their heads. Yes. For the you know, because it, it is they're they're having this first contact moment mm -hmm. between the U.S. military and the, and the Ferengi or the Martians, as they call them, <laughs> right? Or them, and it was just this whole like miscommunication, but mimicry still seems to be like the form of of, of clarity mm -hmm. between two species. Yeah. Yeah, I, even though that Quark's like, what a bunch of morons. <laughs> he that. plays it so well. I mean, look, it, it, it's sort of, you know, again, it's redundant to, to keep pointing out how good Armin Shimmerman is. But God, he's good. He's mm -hmm. just so great. All right. Let's talk just for a second about the uh, impracticality or maybe practicality. I don't know, of a cranially embedded universal <laughs> translator. Um. What what do you do now in the 24th century? You show up at Starfleet and they're like, uh, welcome, here's your uniform and here's your comm badge and uh, hold still, I need to stick this thing in your head. You know? That would have been interesting to see though. Right? Yeah. It's part of, or maybe when they go into Starfleet Academy. I know that in a couple shows like Farscape, one of the things they do is that they'll inject you with nanobots hmm. that are obviously, you know, programmed with every possible language the, in the known galaxy. So that writes away a lot of the conceit mm. about language. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing in science fiction that we always kind of accept, swallow wholesale, is that aliens are speaking our language or we're speaking their language without the, uh, the technology of a handheld or comm badge version of a universal translator. And in this case, I mean, in Starfleet, isn't the universal translator built into their comm badge? Oh, you know what? I Did they ever establish that? Because for... I always thought that... It seems like you could they... use it for that. But yeah. yeah, yeah. So anything on their person, mm -hmm. especially either their tricorder or their comm badge, would be their universal translator. But the, what I loved about the whole scene where their, their comm badge or their universal translator isn't working... Mm -hmm is that you actually see the Ferengi talk in their native language. You see Quark and Rom and Nog all speaking Ferengi yeah. 
And that was really nice and alien, and it really lent to the scene. But then all of a sudden, when they had their translator fixed, they started speaking English again. Yeah. And I, don't, I, I thought that would have been neat just to maybe continue that that illusion. Right. But obviously, in the in the the context of of what needs to be done in this episode, they have to kind of go back to the the standard formulaic version of language. It's it's a little weird. I mean, um, because if that were a real thing that uh, cranially embedded universal translator, it's not actually changing the words that come out of the mouth of the speaker. So you would still hear a Ferengi speaking in Ferengi, but whatever, something else is being broadcast to you so you can understand them. It really is more for the recipient. It's really more for the Ferengi standing there hearing somebody speak English in that mm-hmm. case, or a Federation standard, if they're back in the 24th century, so that their brain is processing those sounds. So it is a little weird. I mean, I, I have no problem sort of suspending disbelief on Star Trek that just, all right, whatever, however, we've established that they have figured out a way to communicate. I think Star Wars does it very well, um, where you've got sometimes an alien or a, a Wookiee or, who you know, speaking their mm-hmm. language. But all you really need is the reaction of the person talking to them to get what they're saying. You don't have to run right. subtitles, you know, do that. I also think like a movie like The Hunt for Red October, um, I always like the transition in that movie where it's Sean Connery and Tim Curry. They've been speaking in Russian up to that point, and the camera zooms in as they're talking about the importance of what they're doing, reading a Bible verse, and you see Armageddon. That's the mm-hmm. word. That's that transition word that's the same for them as it is for the English-speaking audience watching the movie. Then you just you accept it. You're like, oh, okay. We know that they're speaking Russian. We're hearing them speak English. That's okay. Right. And then when the Dallas comes in and then when Scott Glenn's character, you know, he meets mm-hmm. up with Captain Ramius, they start talking Russian again, and then they start talking English because, of course, they know English. Yeah. Right? Yeah, of course. Right. Of course. But if they're with their own people, yeah. they'd be talking their native tongue. Yeah. Um, and there's another uh, really good favorite of mine that's in the uh, the Mel Brooks remake of To Be or Not To Be. Uh, the opening of the movie, you establish that he and Anne Bancroft are the uh, they're world famous in Poland. <laughs> they're, they're they're the biggest Polish stage actors. They've just wrapped a show and they're doing all of their dialogue in Polish and they're saying thank you to the audience, chuguja, chuguja. And then you hear the uh, just the movie basically stops. You hear an announcer. Uh, the narrator of the film stop everything to say, you know, attention, for the sanity of the audience, the rest of this movie will be done in English. And then they, they carry on in English. <laughs> but you've established that they're in Poland speaking Polish. So Yeah, it's yeah. also in the uh, in the Orville. You know, they have all of these uh, they, they, these excursions to all these different planets, and obviously they have to use English or else they're not going to be able to, to get across the... They're going to spend too much time in the exposition of trying to understand how they're translating the different languages sure. and how these people can interact with them and understand them. So I think it's just maybe it's a science fiction convenience or a trope yeah. that we just accept it. Yeah, it, it is. And look, honestly, nobody maybe 30, 40, certainly 50 years ago when we had Star Trek would think like, oh, okay, in a few decades, you will have a phone that you have on you all the time. And there are dozens of apps that you could download that allow you to speak naturally and then see your voice written out, see the words you spoke written out, see those translated into another language, and then hear them translated into another language practically in real time. So, yeah, science fiction becomes 
science fact. Speaking of language and speaking of dialogue, I also I love the 1940s dialogue in this movie or in this show because it reminds me of movies from that period. You know, I, I, it's just Jeff and Faith talking about their wedding. Like, oh, I can't wait to see you in a wedding dress. And my mom really wants to go on a honeymoon to Niagara Falls. Well, maybe we'll go to Mars. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it, it was perfectly written. It was perfectly delivered. So um, I love that. Very Pleasantville. You know, boy, howdy. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of their dialogue, great use of new worlds and new civilizations. It's a tricky thing when Star Trek references Star Trek. And you might have groaned when you were watching First Contact, the movie, not the episode, and, and you heard Zephram Cochran say, what are you, on some kind of a Star Trek? Uh, okay, you know, that that, that might have been a tough one to swallow, but uh, this this felt pretty natural. I, I, I was glad to see it in there. I thought the exact same thing about the James Cromwell scene, yeah. the Zephram Cochran scene, because that was so forced. Yeah, it, it's a joke. It's clearly, we're writing a joke for this movie. We'll yeah. downplay it, but we're mm-hmm. writing a joke. Yeah, yeah, but here it's very natural, and it, it goes into just the whole spirit of just reaching for the stars. Yeah, right, right. And the optimism that, that these two have, Faith and Jeff. Yeah, yeah, it, it was really, really nice. Uh, of course, we have the uh, Ferengi understanding of human culture, baseball, root beer, darts, and atom bombs. I think, you know, sure. I, That's yeah. it. That's all of humanity. Sounds right about there. right. That's all you need to know. Sounds about right. And then, and then tobacco and, oh. um, you yeah. know, and, and greed. And greed, yeah, yeah. Uh, Norman, did you get a little uh, worried about the idea of Nog just sitting there getting umox right there from Faith uh, in front of everybody? I mean, that was just... So can we actually talk about that a little bit and what that means? Please, please. Because there are... There are times when science fiction uses these kind of like these cultural... I guess cultural affectations to to pull a joke on the audience. You mm-hmm. know, we know, we know what this means. Yeah. We know that we know what they're alluding to when it comes to Umox. Right. Right. So that's really just more of a clever way of being crude in, in a way in the writing and, and to pull a laugh out of the audience because it's, it's like using vulgarity, but in an alien language yeah. without subtitles. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's not that I don't like it, but let's just call it for what it is. You know, it really is just a way to be a little bit more mature in trying to get a rise out of the audience from that scene. And Aaron Nisenberg, he pulls that off marvelously. Oh, sure. Sure. Because I would like to have been getting Umox from Faith. <laughs> from, and, yeah. But it, look, it, here's the tricky thing, though, uh, particularly about writing the Ferengi, is you have to make them simultaneously entertaining and repulsive. So it's like that's mm-hmm. one of those moments where they go like, oh, okay, well, we've had fun with them, and we're going to have more fun with them. Oh, but remember, they're also kind of sexist pigs. So Totally. Yeah. So we'll work this yeah. in there, too. Even someone as young as not. Yeah, right, right. We always like to point out the rule of acquisition. Here we have number 203 new customers of, like, razor-toothed gree worms. They can be succulent. They can bite back. <laughs> Love it. Do they use the tooth sharpener? Oh, they might. They might just just get in there when you know right before dinner. Um, hey, uh, that scene where Wainwright and the soldiers come in and put the hoods over Rob, uh, Rom, uh, Quark, and Nog, take them to their room. 
why why do they need to put hoods over the Ferengi if we're literally just going next door with all the same people? Because human military is bad. Got it. And aliens are good. Okay. All right. Got it. Wasn't okay. sure. Wasn't sure. Yeah. Right. And that's that kind of speaks to this weird part about how observant are these military people? Because <laughs> so you have them looking at, at, at Quark and Rom and Nog kind of 24-7. They're supposed to be on a secure Air Force base, and they're supposed to be under observation. But then all of a sudden, Odo transforms from a dog into Odo, <laughs> but nobody runs in the room right? and says, oh, my gosh, what are you? We thought we had these Martians wrapped up. And we're going to interrogate them. But all of a sudden, you just turn from a dog into a humanoid thing. Uh, we are kind of freaked out now. Yeah, and uh, never mind that tire that just somehow got itself onto a Jeep. <laughs> and then, you know, fortunately, everybody's back is turned when it turns into an Odo again. Um, but I love it when, when Odo says, now listen carefully because we don't have much time. Someone could come in any minute. Right. Well, I would hope so. Yes. Under 24-hour yeah. military <laughs> right. observation. Oh, man. I mean, they're aliens. I, I wouldn't leave. I would be, you know, I want to see everything they do. So, yeah. It's just kind of like that. So that, that, it's very typical of how they kind of portrayed what was going on with like the 1940s. It's like this. Oh, shucks. Yeah. We didn't. For, we forgot to lock the door. Right. Now what's going to happen? We got to chase those aliens across the base. Right. Exactly. You know. Gosh darn it. Good golf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to point out that I, I really love that scene where they are in the interrogation, and and it's sort of the the one-upmanship. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, you want the truth? Try my version of the truth. You know, just going around mm-hmm. the room and like, uh, this is a mistake. I want my mommy. Uh, we're an invasion force. I don't know. I'm here to sell <laughs> things. It, it was really well played. It was well edited as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just a nice little shout out to another fun bit. I think the one thing probably when it comes to time travel episodes is that you're always going to have somebody in your ensemble that's going to be kind of like the the miracle worker, mm-hmm. if you will. And in this case, it's Rom, because Rom obviously is brilliant. They make a point that he's brilliant. And all of a sudden, how are we going to get home? Well, if I can find a beta irradiation cloud and you know, ignite the chemocyte, then obviously it can get us back to exactly our own time yeah. when we need to be there and return the story back to our original trajectory. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, no, yes, okay, fine. <laughs> right. Because they did that all the time in Star Trek. Slingshot around the sun or turn back the chronometer, however you want to do it. Well, I mean, you know, fortunately from this point on, uh, Star Trek never relies on time travel as a plot device anymore. Or at least one that we can't anticipate being just like, okay, yeah, sure, why not? You yeah. know, They're going to have to get back their own time sooner or later. <laughs> It's all fun and games until you alter the timeline thereby wiping out the existence of everything and everyone you've ever known. Still, it's a risk worth taking when a few million bars of gold are on the table. We'll spend a little more time interrogating our little green men. But first, a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. You know, Norman, one of the things that uh, I'm really proud of with the sponsors that we have is uh, that I actually get to use the product and try it out and and talk about the aspects of those products that I like. And uh, I've been using ExpressVPN for a good long while now, literally on all of my devices, uh, phone, tablet, computer, everywhere I go, everywhere that I work, 
I use ExpressVPN. And it's important to me, of course, for privacy and security, that is key. Anytime I'm on public Wi-Fi, if I'm uh, traveling or if I'm working from a, a restaurant or a coffee shop or cafe, um, even just from uh, a guest office or somebody else's home that I may not know, ExpressVPN is there to protect what I do by making anonymous internet browsing, it encrypts my data, and hides my public IP address. Um, now, the other thing that I love is the express part. Um, VPNs, honestly, kind of always scared me off. I thought there was a lot of configuring that I had to do. I thought there was a lot of technical knowledge that I needed. One of my favorite things about ExpressVPN, once I created a name and a password and I put the app on my devices, it's a big button. I mean a huge button that just shows connected or disconnected. And it's up to me to turn it on or off, or in my case, just leave it on all the time. And it doesn't interrupt anything that I do. I can stream audio, I can stream video, I can make calls, I can browse the internet. It doesn't slow anything down, and I was happy to test that out with the service on and with the service off. Use the speed test app, no impact at all. Now, probably the best part about ExpressVPN is the cost. It costs less than $7 a month, comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And again, wherever I go, if I'm working uh, down the street or out of town, ExpressVPN is there to protect my connections and keep it at a speed that impresses me every time. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. Now, Norman, I feel like this is one of those deceiving episodes where uh, it's all fun and games on the surface. <laughs> but there are definitely some... Uh, uh, I, maybe not necessarily deep ideas, but some important ideas to kick around with this one. But I think what's especially interesting about Little Green Men is that it feels like Star Trek is painting with a very broad brush here. Uh, almost to the extent like if you've never watched any other Trek, or if you only have sort of a passing familiarity with science fiction tropes, then this is sort of just one episode that brings it all home. That it really it boils down so much of sci-fi and arguably so much of Star Trek into one neat little 45-minute package. You got aliens. You got time travel. You have all the perfect stand-ins for humanity. You have uh, the curiosity. You, you have the sympathetic role. You have the paranoid role. And we're meant to identify with Jeff and Faith uh, like we did with, oh, oh Edith Keeler. Hey, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you even get a few digs in at, at stupid but commonly accepted parts of the human condition like greed and atom bombs and cigarettes. And you have some myth-making, too, with the whole Roswell thing. But pointing such a, you know, again, it, it's not subtle by any means, but by specifically having the alien go to a human and say, wow, your smoking is stupid, your atom bombs are stupid, you're greedy, you're primitive, 
it, it's sort of like every great science fiction trope and almost every terrible science fiction trope. If I may quote the great Ed Wood from Plan 9 from Outer Space, you stupid, stupid humans. You know, it really <laughs> is that. But done in a, a very entertaining Star Trek way. It has the Star Trek veneer over mm-hmm. it. So I think there's a lot to like here. I think there's a lot to uh, dig into here, even if it feels like subtext is sort of out the window, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, you know, for me, it felt a lot like I was watching something that would have been produced by Glenn Larson in the 1980s. Oh, yeah. Okay. So now, wait a minute. Are we talking uh, Galactica 1980 with Kent McCord down on the planet as a colonial warrior, but riding a cool motorcycle and going to a Halloween party? Of course. Okay. All right. You get me. Make sure. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Hey, of course, 1980. Viper cycles. Guest Why star. wouldn't you want to? Yeah, yeah. Guest star Wolfman Jack. I mean, how how could I not? Make that connection. Yeah, it's about Mr. Z. No, he's it's all about not. Mr. Z or Doctor Z. Doctor Z. Z. Yeah, Doctor Z. Yeah. Who, so, but who, it, who it, I it, thought it, was like a child version of Paul Williams, but uh, apparently not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's the, it's the hair. It's it the is there. Long blonde mm-hmm. hair. You know, but I mean, back in the 1980s, you kind of have these these sitcom or these uh, very light science fiction shows that kind of deal with the traditional tropes of science fiction, either your your Roswell crash or your Area 51 mythology or your Hangar 18 mythology, you know, things like where Leonard Nimoy was, you know, he was kind of like doing his old in search of or even before things like X-Files or Alien Autopsy. Mm-hmm. So you had this very, I guess, um, I wouldn't say like naive approach to science fiction storytelling, but something that's a little bit more sanitized. However, what really spins this and turns it into Deep Space Nine and Star Trek is that you're seeing a lot of humanity through Quark's filter. Yes, right. And this is where I think that this episode really takes shape. It's because it's about how Quark sees humanity, how the Ferengi, I guess their their culture can manipulate humanity. And even though that they're trying to do so and trying to kind of like prey upon the the sensibilities of humans at the time with the paranoia and the way that they're kind of fearful of things of the unknown. There is a faction in Jeff and in Faith where they look at these travelers from beyond the stars and say, you know what, if we help them, we might actually get an understanding of what it's like to be able to go out there to be this different version of humanity. And that's where I love you brought up that that Edith Keeler reference because it goes back to City on Digit Forever, where mm-hmm. she's like, you know, one day we're going to harness the atom and build great spaceships and go beyond the stars. And, and when Kirk and Spock are like, wait a second, she shouldn't be thinking like this. Right. That's where we see the great optimism with Jeff and faith and more faith in this situation. But I also love how it's kind of uh, tempered with kind of like the ugly side of humanity at this time. The, the military and the paranoia and the fear and the torture and... It's very 1980s spiritual science fiction. And, and I love mm. that. And I, I think that there, there are certain tropes that, you know, you see that you're like, okay, you know, there's obviously some type of version of a, of a very kind of standardized science fiction story. You know, you have the guys are going to pull their guns when the aliens start doing something and nobody's talking. And when they start talking, when the universal translators start working, people start understanding their motivations. Yeah. Quark starts understanding how we can manipulate. Faith starts understanding how she can help them get back home. Right. And I just find that I find it very charming. I think charming is the word that I was looking for. Well, so what's interesting is, you know, most of the time in these situations, we always get it wrong. 
you know, the day the earth stood still, <laughs> we just roll out the military, just, uh, you know, uh, give the absolute worst welcome possible. Sometimes we get it right, like Mars attacks, you roll out the military, uh, but that's not good enough because we just get laid to waste by the Martians. Until... And there was no universal trash later for clack, 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 clack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Thank fortunately, you. Slim Whitman comes along. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> But uh, so uh, what I think is so interesting here is that this this episode is sort of encapsulating what science fiction does when you when you say that science fiction in general or Star Trek specifically is holding up a mirror to humanity and and showing you, okay, well, yeah, Starfleet, the, the best of humanity. That's us. That that is our ability to be better than we are. So let let's work toward that. Let's sort of be our our most heroic selves. But guess what? The Ferengi are also us. The Ferengi are the the worst parts of us that are driven by greed and these sort of base desires. And and you know what? They there may be something redeeming in there, but we really don't want to be entirely like them. Same thing with the mm-hmm. Vulcans. Vulcans are admirable. Vulcans are logical. Vulcans have all these great things going for them, but it also causes problems for them. So we can look at that aspect of our humanity and say, well, we really try to be logical. We really try to be scientific about things. But at the same time, we can't go too far in that direction or else we risk losing our humanity. That is the story of Spock over that 25-year arc, you know. But this episode in particular does that with every single character, and particularly with the the earthbound characters. You know, here are the scientists who is being curious and thoughtful and and trying to make the right move whenever he can. Here is the nurse who is being sympathetic and caring and acting with heart. And then here you have the general and you have Wainwright who are just, you know, partly trying to make a deal and trying to be pragmatic about it, but then also getting angry and reactionary and uh, being abusive about this situation, this opportunity, and and really just letting the, the id take over. Oh, it's a thing that's not like me. I don't understand. I can't get the answer I want. Therefore, I'll destroy it. That is all of the human reaction to something that we don't understand. It is all of the human reaction to people that we don't understand. So as, you know, as a great sci-fi movie or a great sci-fi story will sort of present this big picture view of the human condition like that, this is just like, oh, hey, look, we're going to show you a slice of your psyche here and then another one there and then another one there. Don't be like these. Be more like these others. And that's where I really think that this episode is, in in particular, very special. And kudos to Armin Shimmerman, because mm. I thought this was going to be a Nog-centric episode, and it ends up being a very Quark-centric episode. Yeah. Because everything that you see, every, every um, reaction to what we're seeing in terms of the, the human versus Ferengi dichotomy here, the catalyst is Quark. Because Quark, even though that he's gone... What is it, 200 years into the past? Was it 300 years into the past? Uh, in this particular story, mm-hmm. there are uh, 400. 400 years into yeah. the past. Yeah. He's still Quark. He's still trying to find the opportunity yeah. and the profit. Right. And once he realizes that 
the humans of this time, humans of this time, <laughs> are very much pliable to his wares, i.e. technology, power, you know, the ability to be able to get that leg up on their enemies. Yeah. He just feeds into that and is very Ferengi. He stays in character. He stays in the cultural tenets of of the Ferengi. And I love that. Even though that Ram is like, I don't know if we should do this. And Nog's like, hey, you know what? Uh, the humans at this time are kind of primitive mm-hmm. and paranoid. And Cork's like, mm, I can work with these people. I'll take those odds. Uh, there's a scene. And I, I wanted to just kind of reference something that he says. And it's very, very specific mm-hmm. to his his interpretation of what he's supposed to be doing here. And Quark says, these humans, they're nothing like the ones from the Federation. They're crude. They're gullible and greedy. And Odo says, you mean like you. And Quark says, yeah, these are humans I can understand and manipulate. Yeah. Right. That kind of says it all. I found that very refreshing that this storyline was focusing just as much on that side of the human equation as they were on the optimists and those who are looking at this as an opportunity to see that there is a greater universe out there than what they understand of themselves. And that's faith in Jeff, but more faith Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, uh, absolutely it is. And and that is sort of in the uh, tradition of the Star Trek morality tale, showing you the more moral shall we say, Mm -hmm. or ethical or enlightened uh, point of view there. John, I had something very specific I wanted to say about faith. Please. And I want you to embrace it in the spirit of what I'm trying to say. Okay. So the character of faith, and you mentioned this earlier, the character Mm -hmm. of faith is very much channeling the spirit and optimism of Edith Keeler. Absolutely. And we all know that Edith Keeler was from the quintessential original series episode, City on the Edge of Forever. Mm Mm-hmm. Faith embodies the very soul and optimism, the heart, if you will, of this episode. So she is literally in this episode, faith of the heart. I I might have to quit. You're welcome, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Now search in your pockets for some gold-pressed latinum for that pun. No, but seriously, though, yeah. I mean, when you really think about it, uh, Faith is, there are three key scenes that I that I see that Faith embodies kind of like the Gene Roddenberry vision of Star Trek, mm-hmm. which is still mm-hmm. very much at play in this episode. When when Jeff and Faith are examining Quark, Rob, and Nod for the first time, she says, who knows what they could teach us? A few years from now, mankind could have rocket ships of our own. We could travel the galaxy, exploring new worlds and new civilizations. And Jeff says, always the dreamer. And Faith says, that's why you love me. You, you mentioned that mm-hmm. before, but that's very Edith Keeler. Yeah. Very Edith yeah. Keeler. Uh, the next time where I think that she's influential in, in terms of that Gene Roddenberry vision is when the Ferengi are being intimidated and interrogated, when they had the bags put over their heads and stuck into that room with the same people who put the bag goes, <laughs> bags mm-hmm. over their heads, like you said. Yeah. And Faith said, Captain, this is wrong. These people are our guests. And then... The captain, Wainwright, says they're not people, they're things. They're invaders from another world. The dichotomy there between the optimist and the, the, the side of humanity that wants to understand these alien beings and where they came from is com- completely at odds, literally in the same room as somebody who finds their presence as a threat to humanity. Yeah. Oh, also, I also wanted to make kind of like a side note that this is probably the most Star Trek moment for me because... When Star Trek does what Star Trek does right, it always brings up a social issue in the context of science fiction. 
I think both you and I are in agreement with that. Yeah. And Captain Wainwright says in this scene that there aren't any laws preventing torture and intimidation as long as it's protecting national security. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And this is about as clear of a Star Trek moment and any as a, a prime example of Star Trek using science fiction to illustrate a very real world issue that's happening right now. The manipulation of the truth and the rule of law and how it is being interpreted or misinterpreted and being enforced against immigrants, immigrations, and quote-unquote aliens, in this case, literal aliens, but in our case, aliens that are coming from different countries to the United States. Yeah. And I know that this was an episode that was done 20-something years ago, but you can't, you can't ignore the fact that that message is so prevalent right now. Well, look, it, just to extrapolate, I mean... It, look, in the context of this episode, our sympathies are with Cork, Ram, and Nog. We we align with Faith being sympathetic and caring and understanding. We are horrified by Wainwright just saying, like, oh, well, all the rules go out the window when it comes to national security. So everybody in the audience watching this should be aligned to the same idea, that that is a horrible... Uh, position to have. And yet, and yet, on DS9, and in our discussions of DS9, and others started not just specifically picking on DS9, but we happen to be in DS9 right now. There are plot points that come up in Star Trek, where we go, oh, but you know what, we should actually break our rules. And we should actually compromise our principles here. Because this is a really difficult thing to do, and it'll be easier to do that thing if we compromise our principles. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to point that out now, <laughs> because I think we're all on the same page here about the horror of what Wainwright is saying. It's like, yeah, well, you know, we have rules, but when there's something that's really challenging and when it has to do with protecting ourselves, we're perfectly fine with pretending like those rules don't exist. I want everybody to let that sink in for a moment because there will come other times in other episodes that we discuss where it's not that easy to be sympathetic to the person on the other end of that. And it's much easier for us as the audience to go, oh, well, you know, ooh, they're in a really tough position. I understand the reason behind the rule. I understand the reason behind holding that principle, but... Oh, this one is so difficult. We really need to break that rule here. Promise we'll mm -hmm. never do it again. Oh, but we should really break it here. Yeah, you actually referenced this really well. In, it's the same sentiment that you brought up in, I believe it was when we were doing Way of the Warrior, where the Defiant had to go in and rescue uh, Dukat and his ship from being destroyed. Yeah. But they had to break their own rule and use the cloaking device in the Alpha Quadrant because they were on a mission of mercy. Yeah. But they're breaking their own rule, which was set because there's a certain ethical reasoning behind that. And every single time that you break that rule, it becomes easier and easier and easier to justify sliding down the slippery slope of ethics yeah. because you believe you're doing the right thing for the right reason. And when is a bridge too far, as I believe that's how you put it. Yeah. And this is one of those examples with Wainwright. Obviously, he's patriotic, and obviously he follows his orders, and obviously he wants to protect the, the sovereignty of the United States at this time from any type of enemy, foreign or domestic or alien at this, in this case. But at the same time, though, 
what is he doing from a moral standpoint? What is he doing from an ethical standpoint? And how do you justify that? And how easy it is to be able to let that slide because you believe that you have been in the right the entire time. Yeah. Well, and, and you right. mentioned kind of, you know, what, what we do present day as of recording this. And I, I'm thinking back, well, you can look at 20 years of military history. You can look beyond that 20 years of military history. But I'm just thinking of sort of what's uh, what's been immediate and relevant in my life, that there have been public debates, or I, I should say in the public sphere of debate, about how much torture is okay, you know? And, and, and mm-hmm. we, we take that seriously and, and actually ask ourselves, well, we don't like to think of ourselves as torturers, but, you know, well, the, the, this one time, it's going to be so much easier if we just torture somebody. So let's try to figure out the best way to torture somebody. Yeah, there's a there's a definite ends justify the means yeah. motif in play with with all of that, you know, under the umbrella of what people believe is moral and right and just in in the best in the best interests of who they're protecting and why. And if that's always the answer that the ends justify the means, ditch the principle. Get, stop using the principle to fall back on because it um it's a lie at that point. But, but I like the way that they're using it in this episode because the episode's so light, that particular plot point becomes so heavy when you really think about it. Yeah, absolutely. But returning back to the the optimism of this character. Yeah, please. Faith, <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes. you know, that's because without her in this episode, without her and Jeff in this episode, we are going down that specifically darker road of, of humanity. But she returns us to that optimistic look of Gene Roddenberry's vision at the very end when she's helping Quark and Rom and Nog and Odo escape. Quark says, thanks for your help. You may be humans, but you're okay by me. And Faith (laughs) says, you don't have to thank us. I only hope that one day mankind will travel to the stars and take its place in a vast alliance of planets. Rom says, (laughs) Federation of Planets. But that's just a wonderful sentiment of where her headspace is and where she's trying to return us to as viewers when it comes to these two humans speaking for the optimistic population of we as a global Star Trek fandom. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just so refreshing to see. And at the very end, Jeff says, a vast alliance of planets, you have the craziest ideas. <laughs> Here are some more things I have learned about Earth culture, reality shows, March Madness, Unlimited Breadsticks, podcasts, Unfriending, Yacht Rock, Nachos, Sharing Your Login, Riker Memes. So, Norman, we have a great opportunity here to meet the later 20th century version of Edith Keeler. Uh, man, it's too bad that Faith and Edith never had a chance to meet, right? Two powerful, visionary women. Um, unfortunately, Edith's time covered in so much tragedy. But, but we met her 1947 equivalent and got to spend time with her 
and those little green men. And as we wrap up our discussion today, uh, where we will dig into the morals, meanings, messages, and uh, whether or not the whole thing holds up. Norman, I'd like for you to tell me and our listeners if you feel like little green men holds up. Well, I think it, it actually really does hold up as a time travel episode and as episode of Deep Space Nine and, and of Star Trek, because I see it as it's more about how it tries to fit into a significant cultural event that happened in U.S. history, um, the Roswell crash of 1947. And that is not just U.S. history. That's kind of global history. And it obviously has spurned a lot of these great theories about aliens and how aliens have visited us from the past and how they're still here. You have the UFO crash at Roswell that kind of led to all of these great pop culture explosions like the X-Files or to Roswell High or references to Area 51 or Hangar 18. What I love about this episode is that it has so much optimism built into it with Faith's character. And for anyone who really does know the original series and City on the Edge of Forever, you cannot help but draw that parallel between her and Edith Keeler because some of the lines in specific are almost the exact same tone, if not the exact same words, in, in various degrees. And I think that that's so important because, just like we talked about, there is a very dark tone to this episode where humanity is not at its finest, where Quark is trying to feed off of the darkness of a certain side of humanity. And when you see those two polar opposites against each other in one episode, in one narrative, you get to see what is always great about Star Trek. You get to see the entirety of the human condition in two very polarized forces that cause conversation from the narrative of what we believe humanity should be. For me, as a Star Trek episode, it kind of fits all bills. Is it tropish? Absolutely. Do I buy into the time travel? Not necessarily. It's just a, a vehicle, literally, and a mechanism of trying to get them to the past. But the spirit's there. The intent is there, and the nod to Gene's vision is there stronger than I've seen it in more of the recent episodes of Deep Space Nine. And that's what I appreciate about this episode, is that it gives you that twinge of optimism at the very end that most Star Trek episodes would end on that upbeat note. I don't disagree with, uh, with what is great about this episode, but I'm still... I'm a little bit on the fence about it. Maybe, maybe I'm not on the fence. I, I do think the episode holds up, but I have some problems with it, too. I think that the time travel here, it, it truly is a contrivance. I know you've got to get them there. I, and I have to have a reason to get them there. And then you also have to get them back. But man, at, at a certain point, it's just like in the Star Trek universe, you can travel back in time about a hundred different ways. You know, it's just no matter. Oh, we just uh, we need some energy, and then uh, the the magic thing, and then boom, we're back in time, and then we just reverse it, and we're back in the present time and place, exactly where we wanted to be. There's really there's more danger in a DeLorean time machine at this point than there is in uh, in Star Trek's version of time travel. I also feel like, and maybe this is a bad or a good thing, it doesn't necessarily contribute to the overall narrative of Star Trek. Like, yeah, it's our characters, Rom, Quark, and Nog, and Odo as well, can't discount him. And in a weird way, 
This is a well-produced episode, but it can feel a little dated. It's sort of that problem where you can always tell a lot about the time that something was produced when it tries to do a period piece. So like a, a movie made in the 1990s about the 1940s looks different from a movie made in the 1960s about the 1940s. And in this, some of those effects stand out, like that moment the dog jumps up on Quark and then turns into Odo. There's some compositing there that is a little a little janky. But, you know, it's still the best of the time that it was made. And, and I'm also, you know, I kind of wonder sometimes if broad swipes are the right or the wrong way to tell a Star Trek story, you know? So... You can you can tell Star Trek stories with subtlety, but you can also tell Star Trek stories to somebody who is literally half black on one side and half black on the uh, or half white on the other side, and that is still a brilliant episode of Star Trek. So I uh, in this one, you know, you have sort of the science good, war bad, cigarettes bad, it, you know, uh, compassion good, and it, it's very in your face, and it is sort of leave it up, I guess, to individual taste to decide whether that is the storytelling that they want or not. And and something specific to what you pointed out here. Now, I actually have some mixed feelings about Star Trek messing around with urban legends. And, and, and I don't know why. I mean, I, Star Trek is fiction, and I try not to be too precious about it. There's just something weird to me about shoehorning in a 20th century, quote-unquote, mystery that people already argue about and then just sort of Star Trek to come in and put another sort of fictional stamp on that thing. It doesn't always bother me, but sometimes it does. Now, let's talk about things that I really like. I really like that this episode is, it is also a close bookend to Tomorrow's Yesterday, which is a fun TOS episode. It's the one where the Enterprise suddenly finds itself back in 1967 and beaming aboard a pilot from an airplane, and then you got to beam our guys down to get rid of the footage that shows the Enterprise, you know, 300 years out of time. So fun episode there. And then I just love how we've been talking about the parallel between Faith and Edith Keeler, both compassionate, admirable, visionary people who who really are representative of what Star Trek is saying we should be, we could be, and we must be if we are to get to this better future that we all want. And here really is the most important thing to me. This episode holds up because it's fun. And, and we always like it. I, I'm not speaking for you necessarily, Norman, but we, the royal we. I... It's fun when Star Trek gets to blow off a little steam. And and this is almost like a pleasant little diversion, like we're reading a Star Trek comic book or some very clever fan fiction and and not just sort of diving so deeply into a heavy narrative of a uh, of a show or a movie that is trying to be epic and important. This has important messages and morals and meanings, but it's also just fun. Look, yeah, what am I? I'm saying this episode holds up. It really does. However, there are things about it that I may not necessarily put it in my top ten of DS9, mm. but it's awfully fun. <laughs> but no, that, I, th- I think that's fair, and I agree totally with that. Sometimes you know certain production values just don't hold up, and sometimes they'll snap you out of kind of like the reality and the illusion of the story. But 
what I come away with from looking at these episodes is that how did it inform me as a Star Trek fan of where where we believe humanity should go. Mm -hmm. And it's because there are so many direct tie-ins spiritually and in, in very case, very, many cases, almost literally in the dialogue to the original series type of Star Trek that it's it pays off dividends for me emotionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that. Well, let's let's talk about morals, meanings, messages, and what we learned out of it. Um, I, I think there was a lot of good stuff. Uh, so I, why, why don't you go ahead and hit us with that? Well, I mean, for what I consider is like a, a lighthearted and comedic episode, there is a greater sense of, of original series roots. As we've said before, the spiritually channels a few very specific TOS episodes, City on the Edge of Forever, Tomorrow is Yesterday especially. And weaved into the storytelling are these Edith Keeler optimists, Jeff and Faith, versus these military pragmatists, Captain Wainwright and General Denning. The overall narrative of how that story and these two polar opposites provide a very specific and relevant example to the social issue of today, and in this case, the law or lack thereof or the manipulation of and authority at the expense of the rights of aliens, in this case literally, but overall figuratively. And I have to do this because since we both have mentioned tomorrow is yesterday, yes, very specifically, there's a scene that just smacks of the interrogation scene in this episode in Little Green Men from Tomorrow is Yesterday. And it's the scene between Kirk and Colonel Fellini. Oh, <laughs> right. Where Colonel Fellini says, All right, Kirk, maybe this will make you laugh. Sabotage, espionage, unauthorized entry, burglary. How are those for starters? And I can think up lots more if you don't start talking. All right, Colonel. The truth is, I'm a little green man from Alpha Centauri, a beautiful place you ought to see it. I'm going to lock you up for 200 years. That ought to be just about right. See, perfect. Perfect. Yes. Look, I, I really can't add much to that. I, I think we really hit uh, a lot of the key points in, in our last segment. But Little Green Men is good Star Trek. It's you know it, it fires on so many of the important points that that they really well makes mission log work and and makes us excited. You know the unknown are people who need help, uh, who need to be understood. You know, and we as the earthbound humans we benefit from that if we look past our prejudices and our paranoia. For Wainwright and and the general and. Well, every soldier is taking orders from the. If you see everyone that's not like you through the lens of fear, then you will treat them that way. You will treat them as something to be feared. Wainwright is the worst offender, and he, as is everybody in this episode, he is a stand-in for us. And in the best sense of the word, the stand-ins are, well, Jeff and Faith, and we just need to be more like them. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com, including Mission Log, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, 
you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek discussion news, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, the Sword of Kales. Wait, what if I'm not ready to leave 1947 yet? There is someone I'd like to visit in Bletchley Park. My great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparent. It's a binary thing. You wouldn't understand. End transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.